Here we go, here we go, here we go. Welcome to Behind the Grind. First and 10 football. If you ain't in, get out. On this episode, Ryan Recker explores the history of Steelers training camp, from its humble beginnings in 1933 to the proud tradition it has become today for Steelers fans all around the world. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ryan Recker. As we approach training camp 2021, we know that for the second straight year, COVID-19 protocols have prevented the Steelers from holding camp at their longtime home, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. The team will instead host camp at the UPMC Rooney Sports Complex as well as Heinz Field. Steelers training camp has had a long and very interesting history with many stops prior to St. Vincent College. And coming up, we will bring you a unique perspective on Steelers camps of the past through the memories of four men, wonderful storytellers who collectively have seen every Steelers training camp since 1969. But before we take a walk down memory lane, Mike Prasuta of Steelers.com, who has covered the team for more than three decades, captures the essence of the St. Vincent experience. St. Vincent to me has taken on a whole life of its own. And it, part of that story is the people, right? We all run into people that, uh, my brother lives in Virginia, he comes up every year for a day because he wants to say, oh, 22 looks good. You know, Where's that third round pick? You know, they, everybody wants to be scout slash general manager for a day at practice. And the close proximity to the players, I think that the way that campus is set up and people can hang outside the locker room or, go down to the field area and you can get autographs or pictures or get them to sign your ball, whatever. Uh, it, it, it's remarkable how, uh, and the players really, to me, are remarkably accepting of that and they participate enthusiastically in that. Decades before St. Vincent, all the way back in 1933, the Steelers' first training camp home was Moore Field in Pittsburgh's Brookline neighborhood. Then, over the next 30 years, the team would take camp to 10 different locations with visits to other parts of Pennsylvania and even other states like West Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island. In fact, the first part of their 1966 camp was spent at the University of Rhode Island in Kingston before they settled into St. Vincent for good later that summer. Here again is Mike Persuda, who extensively researched and wrote a column on the pre-St. Vincent days, including that stop in Rhode Island from 1964 through 1966. I didn't recall coming across any stories where people were coming from Texas or Arizona to go watch the Steelers have training camp in Rhode Island. They uh, they bounced around for a while until they, they got it right. Uh, I think they got it right at St. Vincent, and uh, the, the longevity would, would bear that out. But... Uh, you know, it used to be an automatic uh, in the NFL world before zillion-dollar practice facilities and, and all the comforts of home at home where you went away, A, to get in shape, and B, to start bonding and becoming a team and building that camaraderie and, and also figuring out who you wanted on your team. It's always fascinated me how you pick up an operation and move it. Now, obviously, it wasn't as sophisticated Back then, I'm sure that uh, they didn't bring nearly as many weights and, and training uh, tools and uh, medical machines and things of that nature. But to just pick up and, and go away for X number of weeks and then come back, uh, it's, it's not something a lot of businesses do, right? Former Steelers executive and director of communications Joe Gordon offers his insight on why owner Art Rooney Sr., the chief, 
moved training camp around to so many different locations. Economics, uh, where, wherever he could get a, a fairly reasonable deal from the standpoint, also the availability of facilities that if you were bringing in those days, they probably didn't have near the number of players that we used to bring to camp in, in 69 or 67, 68, 69. So you, if you had 50 or 60 or 70 players, you had to have facilities, particularly dormitories, and a dining room that could accommodate that many people. So it was catch and catch can, and, and the chief, uh, he was kind of a nomad anyhow. He was all over the place. So, and, and probably these uh, uh, cities or these towns approached him. Said, why don't you bring your football team here next summer? So he was receptive to that, but uh, once Dan got involved and uh, we, we moved to St. Vincent, it was uh, incredible. Gordon joined the Steelers organization in 1969, a significant year in the franchise's history with the arrivals of Chuck Nola's head coach and number one draft pick, Joe Green. For Gordon, that first camp under Nola's direction was an eye-opener. To me, it was a revelation, because I couldn't believe it. Number one, we had about 100 players up there. Now there's restrictions, I think, what is it, 80? I think you're only allowed to have 80 at training camp. And it was like a Greyhound bus station with guys coming in and out. Uh, there, there was always a van parked near the players' dormitory, take some guys to the airport, pick up other guys, and bring them back. But you had roughly 100 players, and you had two-day drills in full pads, and they knocked the heck out of each other. It was brutal. If you could survive that, you could survive anything. Gordon also recalls a rather candid Chuck Knoll addressing the team for the first time. He said, I've, I've looked at the films of the uh, uh, past couple seasons, and there, there's a reason why you guys lose. He said, you're not very good football players. He told them this, the first meeting with them, and he said, but we're going to change that. Noel's powerful promise that change was on the way was complemented by a powerful performance by rookie Joe Green. Bob Labriola of Steelers.com describes Green's first training camp practice, a transformative moment. Right then, Chuck was going to see, he's going to test this guy. They lined up in the Oklahoma drill. So Joe Green was in there for the defense. And uh, Chuck proceeded to go down his offensive line with the most veteran starting players that he had and Joe Green kicked every one of their asses. I mean, one after another after another. And Andy Russell said, you know, after the first couple, yeah, the rookie's lucky, or, uh, you know. Then they, he said, we just started to look at each other like, oh my God, what is this? And so that was probably the most dramatic and significant development in terms of the Steelers changing over from, you know, what they weren't for the first almost 40 years of their existence to the kind of franchise it is now. A change in culture was in motion, and by 1972, the Steelers were a playoff team. The immaculate reception and subsequent appearance in the AFC Championship game captivated the fan base like never before. 
and training camp at St. Vincent became a must-see event. Here again is Joe Gordon. After 72, it was incredible. Training camps, the number of people, 10, 12,000. Remember, I said two a days. So there'd be groups sitting up on the hill with their, their beer, their kegs of beer. <laughs> uh, and they'd be, they'd be yelling down on, on the field uh, at the players. And they knew it, it reached the point where uh, it was a happening uh, training camp. The traffic would get jammed on Route 30. They'd be parking on the side of the road. The entrance to St. Vincent off of Route 30, they'd double park on the sides of the road. Uh, St. Vincent had opened up one of those cornfields for parking and everything. And uh, it, it was just hard to believe how much uh, emotion and interest there was at that time. Longtime Steelers beat writer and Hall of Famer Ed Bouchette remembers those parking problems quite well. The state police would call our paper and ask us if we'd put out a warning people not to park along Route 30 uh, because they were going to tow the cars away. There was no, it, it was just that full. You know, people, it was lined up, people lined up on Route 30 um, like there was an air show or something, you know, <laughs> at the airport. Um, it, it, it was crazy. Bouchette covered his first Steelers camp in 1974 and happened upon a story even before he entered the St. Vincent campus. 74, they were on strike, Ryan, um, veterans and, um, the first day I pulled up at St. Vincent along that long road that led in, uh, Jack Ham was there with a picket sign, and there were uh, West Penn Power was on strike too, and there was some West Penn Power workers joining him at the picket sign. That was my. That, I said, I'm writing this, so I wrote that story. I was 22 years old, you know, and um, I, I remember I got a note from Joe Gordon congratulating me on. Uh, on the story, they didn't know the West Penn guys were out there joining their players at the picket line. So that was my my first uh, introduction to training camp was a news story along those lines. In those days, for Bouchette and other reporters, the unofficial start of training camp came in the form of a media gathering with Joe Green. At every training camp that he played, Joe Green would give the state of the Steelers on the first day he got there. And it was, I don't know if there's any photos from then, people would gather around him outside the locker room, outside the dorm, St. Bon, Bonaventure dorm there, um, right out front door, and Joe would, people throw questions at him, and Joe would stand there and you know just give, we called it the state of the Steelers, because it kind of set the tone for that season. As Joe Green set the tone for the upcoming season, the tone for camp and the summer sun at St. Vincent was set by none other than Chuck Knoll. Chuck's training camps were tough. Without a doubt, they were tough. I mean, back then, they had two-a-days all the time. And they, you know, these players lived in dorms without air conditioning. And, you know, classic, they'd all bring their, every time they'd report to training camp, Newspapers the next day would be filled with pictures of guys lugging fans into the dorm, you know. And so with TV, that was the thing, you know. Players reporting back and they all had their fans. Um, but it, but Chuck lived in that dorm too. Uh, Bonaventure Hall, no air conditioning. No air conditioning, no problem for one Steeler. 
Bob Labriola recalls a rather resourceful Bubby Brister. People talk about great players in Steelers history. Well, in my mind, Bubby Brister will go down as one of the greatest players in Steelers history because he is the guy. You know, his father um, was in the fabrication business or something. And those windows in that dorm, they're the kind that they don't open up. They, you know, those old school windows and you pull them out. Well, what Bubby did was he measured that entire um, apparatus and he brought it to his dad, who prefabbed a thing where Bubby came up with a, a power drill, and there were like six or eight um, big screws or bolts or something in that to hold that whole frame up. He came up, he took those out, and put his thing up, put that in, and then it could handle a wall air conditioner. Okay? So if you don't think that that was a significant development, development in the history of St. Vincent College, uh, I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. One of the trademarks of a Chuck Knoll training camp, the Oklahoma drills. Ed Bouchette had a front row seat for all the action. He would line up uh, Franco Harris in the backfield and Mike Webster snapping the ball or whoever was blocking. And um, they'd have two blockers, guard in the center and Franco running the ball, and a defensive player I saw many times, and we'd all gather around. They let us just gather around like in a circle and uh, talk about the news media, and uh, this would go on. I saw many times, I mean, the stars would go up to the stars. Jack Lambert would be there going up against Mike Webster with Franco Harris in the backfield, and it was live tackling. It was, it was pretty intense. Intense for the players and for the fans. Once again, Joe Gordon. The fans, when they knew that we were going to do the Oklahoma drill, was always on one corner of the three practice fields up near where the hills are. And the fans would go absolutely ape over what was going on. And their favorite matchup was Lambert and Webster. And the coaches, they, they knew how the fans, the emotion that was involved, not only with the fans, but with the players. The offensive players would be rooting for the blocker. Defensive players would be rooting for the defensive player. And uh, they'd be yelling and screaming the players. So it was really, for me, absolutely a revelation. Of, I, I couldn't believe how tough it was. At St. Vincent, Gordon occasionally got to see a softer side of Chuck Knoll, away from football. Like in the summer of 1989, when Noel conducted the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra in what was a tribute to the chief, Art Rooney Sr., who died the previous summer. They set up this bandstand down on, on the field, and uh, uh, I don't know how it originated Chuck was going to, but we, we invited families up, players' families, coaches' families up for that, and uh, he was up there, and he was in his glory. I think he maybe enjoyed that more than anything he ever did in his life because he was a symphony buff. He and Marianne would go to the symphony here, so that opportunity to conduct a world-class symphony was one of the highlights of his life and certainly one of the highlights of training camp at St. Vincent. Noel had numerous interests outside of football, but at his core, his passion was teaching and St. Vincent was his classroom for 23 summers. 
And in the summer of 2007, the place where he taught so many players was named in his honor, Chuck Knoll Field. Favorite time of the year, teaching. Uh, it happened more than once after practice. He'd be down on the field with some offensive lineman going through drills and coaching him. And the guy who was a player who had no chance to make the team. He'd spend 10, 10 or 15 minutes down there. I think naming the field after him is uh, most appropriate uh, and uh, well-deserving. Uh, look, without him, you don't win four Super Bowls. And St. Vincent uh, College doesn't become the center of pro football every summer. Bill Cower began overseeing camp practices on that field in the summer of 1992. Ed Bouchette reflects on a memorable Camp Cower moment. It was his first or second training camp. I'm not sure which. They had um, a kicking drill. And there was a ton of people there. And um, behind the goal, one goalpost was a hill that people was packed with fans. And one of the kickers kicked one into the crowd and one of the ball boys went up to retrieve the football and the fan gave it to him and he ran down and Cower saw that. He said to the ball boy, give me that football. And he gave him the football and Cower went up into the crowd and gave the football back to the fans. And I was sitting there along the sideline with Dan Rooney watching this. Rooney goes, he could run for mayor right now and probably win. <laughs> he was popular with the fans. Cower has joined his predecessor Chuck Knoll as a Hall of Famer. And perhaps one day, Cower's successor Mike Tomlin will also get the call to Canton. Very few have had as close of a look at the training camps of these three Super Bowl winning coaches than Bob Labriola, who notes their similarities. The Steelers go away because um, the Rooney family believes in that kind of uh, atmosphere for camp and also because each of those three coaches that you just mentioned believed in that as well. So there's that, that's, that's a similarity. They all believe in a physical approach to the sport. Often that entails winning by attrition in game days. Uh, and while each of them were able to do certain things or prohibited from doing certain things based on the rules of the era, they all believed in that, you know, and you would look at Mike Tomlin's tenure and say, boy, camp is, it's a country club now. Because, you know, a lot of have two days anymore. That is just not permitted. Uh, the, the, the player safety initiative, how that has changed. As I mentioned, no more Oklahoma drills. But Mike Tomlin, I believe, I'm not absolutely positive, but I believe that the Pittsburgh Steelers under Tomlin are the only team that does live tackling or pretty much every day. While St. Vincent has changed over the years with upgrades and expansion, its throwback charm still remains and still links the present-day Steelers with the legends of the past. Here again, Mike Pursuta. You know, there's a, there's a famous book written by a guy named Roy Blount Jr. about the Steelers. It was a, a chronicle of the 73 season, the year after the Immaculate Reception. Roy was a phenomenal writer for Sports Illustrated and they wanted an NFL book so they got him to be kind of an insider embedded for a year and it's called about three bricks shy of a love 
and there are pictures in there of training camp and Terry Bradshaw and Roy Jarella and Joe Green. And it's the campus has changed a lot, but it's still the same campus. It's almost uh, th those fields are the Yankee Stadium, or at least what the old Yankee Stadium was uh, to the Yankees. That's that's the Steelers Yankee Stadium. I mean, it, it all uh, pretty much everything worth chronicling. And that's kind of the epicenter of Steelers history in a way. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at the history of Steelers training camp through the memories of those who offered such a unique perspective on everything from the camp locations to the legends whose storied careers began being carved at training camp. Thanks for listening. I'm Ryan Rector.